First of all, good afternoon, and thanks everybody for coming in this morning. In October of this year, Missouri Governor Mike Parsons stepped up to the podium to deliver a terrible piece of news. We are working to identify the teachers whose information was compromised and any others that may have been compromised. There had been a hack, and the private information, social security numbers, of Missouri teachers had been exposed. It is unlawful to access encoded data and systems in order to examine other people's personal information. And we are con coordinating state resources to respond and utilize all legal methods available. The damage, incalculable. Between fixing the website, the cost of law enforcement to investigate, Parsons estimated that this was gonna cost taxpayers upwards of about $50 million to remedy. And so help him God, he will not rest until he brings those responsible to justice. But let me be clear, this administration is standing up against any and all perpetrators who attempt to steal personal information and harm Missourians. And now, Scott, I'd like to tell you in as much detail as I can possibly muster how the people responsible executed this hack and how you probably have to. If you were to open a browser and go to the Missouri State Teachers website and uh, keep up, right-click on the site and click View Source Code, like the thing where you can like view the HTML on a website, sort of like any browser can do it, and like the basic functionality. If you were to have done this on the Missouri Teachers website about a month ago, you too would have found yourself staring at the confidential information of these teachers. You too would be a hacker, worthy of the full weight of the Missouri legal system slamming down on you like a cinder block. A hacker is someone who gains unauthorized access to information or content. This individual did not have permission to do what they did. They had no authorization to convert or decode. So this was clearly a hack. But the hackers, they made one crucial mistake. Upon discovering this, you know, vulnerability, sorry, committing this hack, they informed the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, like, hey, your site has this vulnerability, and the private information of all these teachers is available to anyone that knows like, how to view source code on a website. And they did this because they were journalists reporting on the vulnerability. And they were telling the government so the government could fix it before they went to print. And now the government in Missouri is very, very angry about it. And I, I think I'm now done being sarcastic. We've all heard the expression, don't kill the messenger, and Mike Parsons has endeavored to just rambo the crap out of these journalists and security researchers who had the gall to deliver the message that there was a vulnerability exposing these teachers' private information. Not just the three that Parsons cites, but hundreds of thousands of teachers whose data was made vulnerable by this technical failure. And this isn't the first time this kind of thing has happened. The history of hacking and the laws governing cybersecurity is the history of people getting harmed trying to warn the authorities that there's danger in front of them. So that's what I want to talk about today, about this story and a couple others that show that sometimes in the world of hacking and cybersecurity, just delivering the message that someone is in danger is a great way to end up dead. Here on Hacked.
This data was not freely available and had to be converted and decoded in order to be revealed. So let's just get something out of the way up front. Is viewing the HTML on a website hacking, Scott? Oh boy, absolutely not. The <laughs> the not only that, like I'm this it's at times like this that I wish that I was a lawyer because I would love to be the one to rip this case apart because mm -hmm. the HTML of a website is actually sent to you from the web server when you make the request. So when you make the request for the website, the web server actually sends you all of that data. Mm -hmm. And then your web browser and each web browser does it differently, renders that data into the actual web page, which any web developer will know and hate because often they're inconsistent across multiple browsers, which makes web development a pain in the neck. So if there's a bunch of private data embedded in the HTML code and like hidden away so that it's not rendered on the screen, that is just god awful web app design. Um, and looking at what you've been sent in a raw form is by no means hacking. If anything, mm -hmm. all of the negligence and liability needs to flow back to the people that are sending that private data out through a non-confidential channel. So, yeah, that's not hacking, and I'm disgusted. Yeah, to my mind, like the source code of a website is the thing that you publish, and a browser is just one way of viewing that published content. But Correct. it's not hacking. You haven't super like gone around anything. No, if you if you know anything about what constitutes confidentiality, mm -hmm. like that that information is so publicly disclosed that the server would send it out in like the server would send it out in its entirety out to you. So it's like. It's not confidential. It can't be confidential. You're literally broadcasting it. Therefore, it is no longer confidential information. And if it was confidential information, the issue should be with <laughs> who broadcast it, not with who received it. So sometime in the week or so leading up to October 12th, this was just last month, a journalist named Josh Renault at the St. Louis Dispatch finds himself having you know, discovered this vulnerability, having discovered that they've published this information. And we can speculate as to why he was looking for it. There's some evidence to that effect later. But the point is that Missouri's Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, DESE, maintains this public-facing website that lets you look up teachers, find their basic publicly available information. They're public servants. They're watching children. Here's almost like a telephone book of who they are, where they teach. Sure. That's pretty much it. Makes sense. Yep. And Renault discovers that if you go to one of these profiles and you view source code, well, now you're looking at a bunch of not public information, social security numbers of these teachers. We've already talked a little bit about how that's certainly not hacking, and we'll get to that more later. But like, can you maybe guess why that would even happen? Why that information would be in the source code at all? Sheer, like, and this is... If this sounds offensive, it's because it probably is, and it should be, it's <laughs> sheer, sheer laziness, because obviously right. that information is coming from the same, and this, like, sorry, I'm going to distract myself here, but it's like, that information is clearly coming from the same database table, and instead mm -hmm. of just pulling the select pieces of information that they need to make the web page, they're pulling it all, and then they're mm -hmm. just not rendering or showing the stuff that, should, mm -hmm. that they shouldn't have, they're just hiding it. Which, two, two problems with. One, they should only be pulling what they need. And two, the second and bigger problem is that they shouldn't, they shouldn't be pulling from the same database table. Like, 
there should be, you know, a wall between private and public data. Like if somebody hacks that web server, they shouldn't have access to all of the teacher's private records. Mm-hmm. You know, socials, paying role, et cetera, like that. That stuff should all be on, on information that's inside of the enterprise, not information that's sitting on the web servers or in database servers that are accessible from the web servers. Like that's, right. you know, security 101. So not only should they not have been publishing this, even if it was into non-visually rendered HTML, not only should they not have published it, but they shouldn't have even been storing it on the same infrastructure, if storing it at all, as the content that they were trying to publish. Yeah, 100%. Like if you could, anything, like if you if you put a server outside, the like in the demilitarized zone, like out in the world, you put a server on the web, you can assume that that server will maybe potentially get hacked at some point. And those hackers will then have access to the network and the infrastructure that that server has access to. And if that server has full database access to like all of the confidential records, then the hackers will have, you should uh, assume that the hackers will get full database access to all of the confidential records. So the best thing to do is to replicate over only the data that you need to render the website to a database server that, you know, the web server then has access to. So, you know, you put walls up between pieces of infrastructure to prevent people from crossing through them. And the more walls between something that's public and something that's confidential, the better. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. So the journalist uh, Renault reaches out to a cybersecurity professor at the University of Missouri-St. Louis named Shaji Khan. And Khan replies to him over emails that we now have access to saying, quote, yeah, we've known about this type of flaw for at least 10 to 12 years, if not more. The fact that this type of vulnerability is still present in the DESA web lab application is mind boggling. And unfortunately, these types of flaws and poor design choices are more common than we'd like. Local and state governments across the country are often still using applications designed many years ago, potentially containing serious security flaws. Khan uses a really relevant word there. He says it's still present in these web applications. Because this wasn't like a general observation. This kind of thing had happened already. And it sort of goes to explain why Renault, as a journalist, would have had some reason to be checking for these basic, basic vulnerabilities on a DESE website. The state auditor's office had previously flagged the department's data collection practices during an audit in 2015. And during that 2015 audit, uh, they found that the DESE, same group, was storing students' social security numbers and other very easily identifiable personal information in its information system for no discernible reason whatsoever. They had the information, from they gathered it at some point, and for some strange reason, they were continuing to store it, and it was also very vulnerable. And the audit urged them, stop doing that and start creating a comprehensive policy for responding to data breaches. And the department said, yeah, yeah, yeah. We hear you. We have complied. Box checked. All is well. And that was five years ago before this happened. So Renault makes this discovery. DESE is still continuing to do the same thing that they got in trouble for before. He writes his article. There's a common practice when it comes to journalists covering like a leak of confidential information, kind of like this. Mm -hmm. You see it a lot in whistleblower cases. The basics, before you go to print, You have a journalistic and ethical responsibility to go to the relevant parties and say like, hey, we're going to publish this and we're giving you warning to make sure you do whatever you need to do to make sure us publishing doesn't do any harm. 
Mm-hmm. Like if you're going to publish a data leak about the military, it could put real humans who did nothing wrong in harm's way. And so even if you have a responsibility to publish, you also have a responsibility to talk to the people you're kind of exposing and make sure a rogue detail doesn't do any harm. You have to disclose. Mm-hmm. So Renault, journalist who finds this, reaches out to the DESE, gets put in touch with their spokesperson, a woman named Mallory McGowan, who replies, very spokesperson way, we've worked with our data team in the Office of Administration to get that search tool pulled down immediately so we can dig into the situation and learn more about what has happened. Kind of the response you'd expect. They're looking into it. McGowan says on Tuesday of that week that the department's going to look at the findings and they're going to talk to the newspaper. They're going to get back to them with a quote by Wednesday evening. But by 3 p.m., McGowan, the spokesperson, has stopped replying to emails. And some new character shows up into the whole play. The department's chief counsel, their lawyer, Sarah Madden, who says, hi, I'm their lawyer. We're not going to be talking about this anymore. And that's when everything kind of starts to take a little bit of a turn. And on Wednesday, the Department of Education sends out a letter, they blast up a press release, and uh, Mike Parsons steps up to the podium to deliver their formal you know, response to all this. And he delivers that speech we heard at the top of the show. This is not a vulnerability. This is a hack. These are not journalists. They're hackers. It's going to cost us up to 50 million bucks to investigate and fix this. And uh, we're going to get into the laws later, but whether or not it's a criminal charge we're actually legally allowed to pursue civil charges, and you should expect them. State statute also allows us to bring civil suit to recover damages against all those involved. Full scorched earth, they're not happy. <laughs> where, like, where does 50 million, just to briefly dwell on it, where, the, where does 50 million bucks come from? Like, how could this no cost clue. 50 million dollars to remedy? But, but he, well, here's the other thing is like, Maybe they have to rebuild all of their data systems and they right. don't have the budget for it. And maybe they think a civil lawsuit is going to pay for that. Huh. Like maybe this is like a man- manufactured lawsuit for funding. <laughs> right, right, right. But it's like, like, it's like the, a Kickstarter. And what you just said, saying that you, these problems have existed for 12 years, like yeah. how are the teachers not a class action lawsuit back to this organization to be like, you've mm. been broadcasting my private information on the internet for 12 years. Like you're mm-hmm. liable for that. And if you know that it's been happening for 12 years, you're like ex- especially liable for it. Like, you know, when you, when you find out there's a problem in the automotive that you're making and you don't fix it, you're even mm-hmm. more responsible and liable. Yeah. You're culpable for it. It's like, if you're broadcasting personal information on the internet, and I'm going to keep using the word broadcasting because that's what they're doing. If they, and especially 100%. if they ever paid for any online advertisement to drive traffic back to their website, <laughs> they were not only broadcasting it, but they were paying were promoting it. and promoting it. So it's like, you know, how is it your, I don't, that's, it's, I'm so baffled by this story, but I'm assuming they have to redo all of their data systems and all the rest of it. And they're saying that it's going to cost $50 million. So they're essentially blaming the person who brought their attention that this problem still existed. They're saying, well, it's going to cost $50 million to fix it. Mm-hmm. And therefore you owe me $50 million because if you didn't bring <laughs> this to my attention, we would be just fine, yeah, which sure. is kind of insane. <laughs> it's like someone pointing out that your house is on fire and you get angry. Yeah. It's literally killing the messenger is the name of the whole thing. Yeah, it's like I call a I call a I call a contractor and I'm like, hey, there's some 
moisture seepage below my window and he's like oh you have black mold you have to replace your wall and i'm like i'm suing you for my wall see you in court yeah see you in court <laughs> so renault and con you know the journalist and researcher are now staring down this legal and political offensive from like the missouri governor's office which is a pretty crappy place to find yourself but as the story gets out and the details of the vulnerability and what parsons is claiming uh, become clear, people start, you know, commenting on it. And in a sort of cross-the-aisle unison that gives me some small hope for the future of political discourse in the U.S., like everybody, <laughs> all political stripes, all backgrounds, collectively holding each other's hands, singing Kumbaya, say, that is the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard, Mike. <laughs> Republican State Representative Tony Lavasco, who, according to his biography, has, like, worked a little bit in software deployment. Perfect. Tweets on Thursday uh, of that week, it is clear that the governor's office has a fundamental misunderstanding of both web technology <laughs> and industry standard procedures for reporting security vulnerabilities. Journalists responsibly sounding an alarm on data privacy is not criminal hacking. God bless this man. God bless this man. <laughs> uh, I know nothing about him, but hopefully God bless this man. <laughs> I'm sure that's something they would say in Missouri. So God bless you, sir. Joseph Martinow, uh, the attorney for the newspaper, came out saying, and I like this one, a hacker is someone who subverts computer security with malicious or criminal intent. Here, there was no breach of firewall or security and certainly no maliciousness of intent. And like, intent gets kind of muddy. We're going to talk about the laws a little bit later because it can mean a lot of different things. But Chris Vickery kind of spoke to what you were talking about, Scott, a California-based data security expert, told a journalist who reported on this that the Department of Education was, quote, publishing data it shouldn't have been publishing, and that it's not a crime for journalists to discover it. Putting social security numbers within HTML, even non-display rendering, which you brought up, uh, is a stupid thing for the Missouri website to do and is the type of boneheaded mistake that has been around since day one of the internet. No exploit, no hacking or vulnerabilities involved here. Uh, you mentioned non-display rendering HTML. There are parts of the source code of a website that are meant to not be seen by the viewer, right? Oh, there's loads of it. Like, like I would say, like most of it is just instructions to the browser, right? Like HTML is literally just a, a markup language to tell the browser what to do with things. Uh, style sheets are now the predominant way of like styling it and making it look what ways. But you can, you can, you could put an infinite amount of information in a website and hide it like it the there's basic instructions for how to hide stuff in there like truthfully if you look at some websites there's funny little messages sometimes embedded in the headers and things like that like some people put um like ascii art like drawings of small mm. ducks like you know <laughs> like there's there's often little easter eggs like for funny like hacker websites and stuff like that like you'll often find sure. stuff in the source code because everybody looks at it also, that guy sounds great. Whoever said the exact same things as me sounds like a really great guy. Yeah, real champ. We're going to quote him again in a second. Vickery seems to know what's <laughs> up. So in explaining how Governor Parsons hopes, you know, this reporter and the news organization are going to be prosecuted, uh, he points to a state statute defining the crime of tampering with computer data, where a court ruled that someone violates the law when they access files or other information that is off limits to them. In Missouri, uh, Chris Vickery, same guy, uh, says that the state was, quote, 
publishing the HTML source to the public internet with no hurdles of a password or other requisite forms of authentication challenge, meaning the public can reasonably assume to be authorized to view that content for the purposes of laws related to computer trespass forms of offense. So if this story starts as, you know, you know, what is a hack? Are these hackers? It, it does end on a bit of a definition beyond just did they mean to, which is that you got to circumvent something, a password, a policy, a program, like a person at a desk that's supposed to say no who you get to say yes. Even according to the most abstract, broad definition of hacking, just viewing content that someone publishes in a way other than how they intended it to be viewed is not hacking. Twitter user Rachel Tilback wrote, by this definition, my cat walking across my keyboard and sitting on the F12 key <laughs> is now a serious punishable cybercrime. You shall now hereby named oh my God. advanced persistent pet, which I just like that pun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, HTML is the thing that is delivered from the web server. Your mm -hmm. browser is simply a renderer for it, but literally you can like the HT, the raw HTML is the thing being broadcast by you. So if you're putting confidential information in there, that's your fault. <laughs> so it's like, I don't know the, I, I hope that this one gets tossed on its head and I hope there's a civil lawsuit on the, on the other direction. And I hope somebody retires peacefully after having to deal with all this BS. Yeah. If there's one thing I've noticed about, uh, uh, governors, it's, they love admitting a mistake and stepping down in shame. <laughs> Hey, I'm sure that I'm sure that I'm sure the farther that he starts keeps putting good money after bad, and the, you know the same sentiment with like you know social uh, social influence, the mm -hmm. longer he keeps persisting that this is a hack, the worse it's going to be when the civil lawsuit comes back on them. Yeah, he has a he has one last move, and we're going to get to it right at the end because it's it's pretty amazing. Um, I think there's like a temptation when a person of a certain you know, technological background, certain age, whatever, get something this, this wrong <laughs> to assume that it's coming purely from a place of ignorance. And like, guaranteed, Mike Parsons does not seem to know a lot about how computers work. But that's not the only reason he's doing this. And we know why he's a, a little bit more about why he's doing this because of a really really incredible piece of political advertising that he ran explaining why he's doing it. And we're going to get to that. Um, but before we do, this all got me wondering, you know, what are some of the other motivations people have for going after the person delivering the message of a vulnerability? The other reason folks, you know, shoot the messenger in stories like this. So we're going to take a look at another one of those stories and some of the laws behind it before getting to Mike Parsons' incredible political advertising right after this break. Here's a fun story. It takes place way back in March of 2016. And this one isn't quite as cut and dry. It's the story of a, a dead messenger, but it's not quite the same as the story of Renault, Khan, and Mike Parsons. It's a little bit kind of foggier. And it's the story of a security researcher named David Michael Levin, at the time 31 years old, of Estero, Florida. David is a security researcher. He runs a cybersecurity company called Vanguard. And one day, right before the 2016 US election, he decides to crack open a piece of free SQL testing software called Havage for testing you know, SQL injection vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. Broadly speaking, Scott, 
what is an SQL vulnerability? Well, Jordan, an SQL injection vulnerability, because there's multiple SQL vulnerabilities, but injection vulnerability is essentially, I can break this down in something easy so that people understand it. Say I'm on the on a website and there's a form that lets me like search for certain pieces of data. Maybe there's like six filter fields in this form. Like imagine I'm looking at like a some form of data records from a store or a store is perfect. I'm looking at inventory items or previous orders that I've had uh, and I can filter that by, you know, date ranges or order number or whatever. Typically the the whatever you type in that like search box becomes a part of an SQL query that goes off to the server and says, hey, like, you know, this person's hmm. searching for orders and they've asked that any order that has this in the title and then it returns that to the to the to the web server which then sends back the html code which then gets rendered into the web page so an sql injection vulnerability is inside of that box on the page if i can figure out how to pass in alternative pieces of sql code so you know maybe the filter field is like description searching but in the description stuff that i type into that box i've pulled myself out of the the piece of text that it's going to look for and then I add additional information, like, you know, I want to see anything that has description that equals, you know, order, and I want to see user ID equals this, and I want to see this, and I, I add additional search functions or additional pieces of query into the box, which then the server takes in and, and actually executes. So, you know, you can bypass a lot of security if you can get the SQL server to believe or to essentially execute SQL language that you're passing in. Does that make sense? Hmm. I feel like that's makes a, a, lot of sense. a harder concept to kind of get across really quickly. Yeah, no, it does make sense. It's almost like the uh, like the questions and comments box, that little slot that you put the comment through. That's the form on a website, and this is a vulnerability that lets someone get into something they're not supposed to through that little that little slot in that box. Yeah. So like the one of the things, well, a long time ago, in a world a long, long time ago, <laughs> You used to be able, there was, back when there was internet cafes, they were often very locked down and you could just have access to the web browser and you couldn't get access to anything else. Or maybe the web browser would only let you look at a specific web page. You could use the search form on a lot of those web pages to actually get access to the file explorer and actually get access to the real computer just by like simply searching for C colon huh. slash windows slash sure. explorer.exe. And then it would pop you up a link to it, which Internet Explorer would execute on and actually open you a copy of File Explorer. So all of a sudden you've taken full access and gotten full control to one of these like Internet PCs at like a, at a random Internet cafe in Thailand per se. <laughs> and, then, and then you could do whatever you wanted. You know, you could open up your own version of, of the web browser and you could go to whatever website you felt like or you could spend more time on it than you were supposed to be allocated, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these like search and HTML and SQL injections have always been a, like a classic web hacking tool. So Levin takes this classic tool and he hops over to the Lee County Elections website and he checks it out. And what do you know, he discovers a critical SQL injection vulnerability, which allows him to get access, as you said, to the site's database, including usernames and passwords. So Levin, security researcher, responsibly reports the vulnerability to the respective authorities and over the weeks that follows, helps them patch all the loopholes on the elections website. 
So far, so good. This is what you want to see. Everyone's cooperating. A researcher finds a vulnerability, reports it, and they all work together to fix it. Great. Then, Levin goes on an interview show with a guy named Dan Sinclair, who at the time was running as supervisor of elections against the incumbent, a woman named Sharon Harrington. Dan Sinclair is running to supervise elections. Levin goes on and says, here was this big vulnerability in the elections website. Explains what happens, talks about the vulnerability, and it kind of immediately becomes a little bit of a football, politically speaking, because this is really good for Sinclair. He wants to supervise elections. Look how vulnerable they are. Here's a security researcher to unpack all of it. Almost two weeks after that video goes up online, Florida police raid Levin, the researcher's house, and seize his computers when he was arrested and charged for allegedly breaking into this election's website, the one where he found the vulnerability and helped them fix it. He then spent six hours in jail before being released on $15,000 bond. Florida police claimed that Levin never asked for permission uh, prior to you know, doing this pen testing on any of these state-owned servers. Sinclair, the guy running for office, said, no, Levin was the one who helped the authorities fix it. He shouldn't be in trouble. So at first, this one reads a lot like Mike Parsons in Missouri. Someone finds a vulnerability and then gets just railroaded for helping. Ish. Ish. Big, big ish on this one. But there's two differences. The first one, I think you've already figured out because he actually did technically do a hack. But there's another little thing going on here. See, it turns out that Levin, researcher, was actually good friends with Sinclair before all of this. The guy running for this position. The one whose YouTube show he went on. And they got the authorities kind of looking into, you know, where did this vulner? Why were you looking into this vulnerability? And they started discovering that there was this friendship between Levin and Sinclair. It turns out, according to Sinclair, that this all started when Levin calls him back in December after taking an online federal course with some DOD people on pen testing. And Levin comes to him and says, you know the supervisor position that you're running for overseeing these, these, these elections in this website? I could really, really easily get into that website. The arrest report makes clear that Sinclair didn't ask Levin to hack into it, but that Levin, the second he did it, calls Sinclair up to tell him what he'd done. So this whole thing starts kind of looking a little bit like maybe a, a political stunt, which Harrington, the incumbent, agrees with. She says the timing of this is all very interesting. Mm-hmm. David Michael Levin pleads guilty, misdemeanor account uh, in connection with hacking the website. He serves 20 days in jail. The whole thing kind of goes away. And this one, you already kind of caught up on part of what makes it interesting. Is that It's interesting because what he did was, I, I think, good. Like he found a vulnerability and he reported it. Should that be considered hacking? I'm not really sure. He did hack, but he did it theoretically for the right reason. For the wrong reason. <laughs> you're, 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 you're entering a very philosophical conversation about the law. But I will say that like I, the difference is very, very profound, I would say. Yeah. Somebody looking at the source code that's being broadcast to them. For sure. Is like... It's insane to consider that hacking. Actually insane. Somebody pen testing a server without permission. It's getting dodgy. Yeah. You're, you're getting very close. <laughs> you know? Like, mm-hmm. like the difference between this being a, oh, he's definitely hacking. And a, what do we think about this philosophically is right. the fact that he reported it. But he it. was. Yeah, for sure. 
You know? The second guy was hacking, so it's like, but he did the right thing with the information that he acquired for a bad reason, potentially. Correct. This is, uh, this is let's just say, a lesson that young Scott learned in his life. <laughs> As somebody who helped friends secure things. Um, yeah, very different story to be asked to do it and reduces your exposure if somebody's requesting that you perform a service rather than you just doing it out of the goodwill of your heart. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to justify goodwill with a paper trail, if that makes sense. So there's two pieces of federal law in the U.S., and there's versions, parallel versions of them in other countries that have modeled their laws after them that are relevant in both these stories. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1986, CFAA, and the DMCA, Digital Millennium Copyright Act. These are the two big laws that have been used to go after researchers. Whether or not they were hacking, those are the two laws in the middle of all this. Mm-hmm. These two stories and countless others. And as we get into this, I think it's worth saying that these laws were written for fundamentally different digital worlds than the ones that we live in right now. And they include penalties for behavior that I, I think is pretty vital for security testing. And neither one of them carves out any kind of general or permanent exemption Mm -hmm. that makes any legal distinction between a researcher trying to help and intentionally malicious behavior that the laws were written to prohibit. So the term bug bounty was coined in 1995 by Netscape. And it was for their program that they'd set up to reward people who reported bugs with, you know, prizes, depending on how big that, that bug was. And even in this like earliest version of what a bug bounty was, it acknowledged that users who were reporting security bugs were one of the most valuable contributions in keeping their system secure. They'd figured that out way back in 1995. And right now, a lot of companies have sort of followed along in that general sentiment. They have, you know, disclosure programs are incredibly common and they carve out a little bit of a, a niche in their terms of service for making sure that if a researcher, regardless of why they were digging around, does find in a you know, report of vulnerability, they have some kind of a protection. But those are corporate policies, not laws. And the laws are not forgiving in this case. And researchers have very rarely found a receptive audience with companies whose products they are testing. The laws just aren't on their side. When they wrote the CFA, the big law in question here, it was three years before Tim Berners-Lee even invented the World Wide Web. Congress passed the CFA in 1986, and it was written uh, for a different internet by a Congress who was thinking about just a different kind of cybercrime. The House Judiciary Committee called the 1983 film War Games, which we've talked about here, which for anyone that doesn't remember that episode, uh, is about a Seattle teen who's hunting for video games and he breaks into like a nuclear warhead silo. They refer to that film in Congress on the record uh, as a, quote, realistic representation of the access capabilities of the personal computer. And that law, CFA, makes it illegal to access any computer, quote, without authorization, which is a really important term in all this. And it's the kind of vague language that has empowered maybe the worst versions of this type of story. Again, importantly, based on what Parsons threatened to do to Renault and the journalist, the CFA also carves out a big exemption allowing companies to sue in civil court alleging CFA violations, even if law enforcement doesn't pursue charges. And all of this is built on a foundation that doesn't define what accessing a computer without authorization means or what it means to exceed authorization. And for most of the last couple decades, there have been different conflicting interpretations of what those terms mean at different levels of court. 
And this sort of just sustained absence of clarity has allowed this law, CFA, to be used as like a cudgel to stop countless different security researchers from looking at products. It's been used to limit competition between companies. And it's been used to go after people for engaging in normal internet behavior, like viewing the source code on a website. Researchers report regularly getting cease and desist letters citing, you know, a possible CFA violation. Uh, and it's just sort of become this really common tool for intimidation by companies that don't want the bad press of a vulnerability. Mm-hmm. In cases that did go to court, we see this pattern where that crucial word authorized in the CFAA had no consistently enforced technical definition and was just sort of, in most cases, defined by that company's terms of service. In other words, the companies kind of get to write the law themselves on a case-by-case basis. It's the law that Parsons and the Missouri governor's office are citing and going after Renault. It's the law in the middle of all this. You know, the cases like this bring to light, you know, things like bug bounty programs and, and in internal security researchers and, you know, the companies that clearly take security seriously look for this stuff they pay people to look for this stuff they pay professionals who are good at this to do this and that's if you really care about security if you don't care about security and you just care about you know obscurity then you you know file charges to anybody that shows that there's a weakness in your vulnerability that you have a vulnerability you know that is the last thing you want to do you know the when you know microsoft is i think pivoted in that light you know, since way old old days, Microsoft. Every time somebody found another IIS problem, it was you know hackers and this. To now being like you know big on this stuff and being like, oh my god, thanks for reporting it. We'll fix it right away. And everybody takes it very seriously. You know, amazing disclosure programs. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's just it. It's like you can you can see the the innovation and the transition that the corporate world's going through. Like, I I can't remember who it was. I think it was Tesla. Tesla used to have a bug bounty program that paid a fortune. Because they know they get it, they get it that they know that if they have a, a massive security breach that allows somebody to take over somebody else's moving vehicle, mm. that it's going to cost them way more <laughs> than oh. it will if they can fix that problem. Like giving you giving you five hundred thousand dollars as a compensation for finding that problem is way cheaper than the 50 million that they're going to pay out in legal fees and, and lawsuits or 500 million, you know? Well, and if the five world-class engineers that we're paying couldn't find it, uh, clearly it's worth something. Like <laughs> to- Totally, totally. In his press release and at this event, Governor Parsons, I think, showed his hand a little on the subject of why he was pursuing these charges. And I have to imagine that at some point between them learning about this and then making the announcement that someone explained to him, you know, this is not a hack. These are not hackers. But there's a couple key lines, not from the official release, which very carefully avoided this sentiment, but from his speech that I think reveal what's happening here, why his office chose to go after the messenger. Quote, this person is not a victim. They were acting to compromise personal information to embarrass the state and sell headlines for their news outlet. Which brings us to this, an advertisement created and published within, I think, seven days. It's a quick turnaround on the subject of this hack. Latest from the Missouri's fake news factory is from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, where a reporter has been digging around HTML code on a state website. 
The State Technology Division said the hacker took the records of at least three educators, decoded the HTML source code, and viewed the social security numbers of teachers from a state website. Governor Parson believes everyone is entitled to their privacy, especially our teachers. Governor Parson is standing up to the fake news media and is committed to bring to justice anyone who obtained private information. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch is purely playing politics. Exploiting private information is a squalid excuse for journalism, and hiding behind the noble principle of free speech to do it is shameful. Oh my god. Seven days. They they turned it around quick. Hey, Jordan, to be fair, we could have done it in one day. Yeah, I think we could have knocked this out a little bit quicker. <laughs> this is a very strange way to go on the offensive against somebody who probably doesn't like you very much publicly. <laughs> oh my god. If you embarrass a powerful person or company or institution on the grounds of their technology there is a non-zero chance they're going to call you a hacker. And it doesn't matter whether you didn't hack them like Renault, or you maybe kind of hacked them, but maybe to help them like, you know, Levin. If you embarrass them with internet stuff, they might come at you. And as long as these laws governing that are vaguely written and inconsistently enforced, they might actually pull it off. And that kind of really sucks. Because the more times this happens, the more it tells the next person who discovers that something is broken and needs to be fixed, that maybe they should just keep that to themselves. Because maybe they're going to get in a ton of trouble for doing generally the right thing. Maybe they should let someone else get hurt so that they don't. 41 minutes of cybercrime law. That's right, patrons on Patreon. You just empowered uh, 41 straight minutes of cybercrime law stories. And oof, oof, does it just mean the world to me. To our new patrons this month, Trev, Trev Goldring, Hacker X. I'm just going to enunciate these too much. Trev Goldring, thank you. Hacker XYZ, thank you. Matthew St. Vincent, Mathis Garretts, Josh, and Nick Owens. You're our new patrons. You're, you are responsible for this. You did this. And if you wanted did this to support the show, visit patreon.com slash hacked podcast. That's patreon.com slash hacked podcast if you want to support our little show. Uh, put a toonie in the tip jar, as we call them up here in Canada. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for making it to the end of this one. It means the world. Uh, catch, catch you on the next one.